Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we're going to be talking about a great new book. It was all a dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. It's due out on the 10th of May. You can pre-order it now. It's by Justin Tinsley, a journalist I've been following for quite a while. And today we're going to be talking with Justin about some of the reporting he did for his book. And he's going to take us through the life story of the notorious B.I.G., who would have turned 50 later next month. So Justin, congratulations on the book. It was a labor of love for sure. It was a beautiful process, but it was taxing. I thought I knew everything about Biggie Smalls going into this. After the research and after the reporting and the interviews, it's like, wow, man, like, you think you know a person until you really start to dig in on them and find out about different parts of their life. Biggie really started to come to life for me from the very beginning of the book. I think you paint probably the most detailed portrait ever of his childhood and his upbringing. What were some of the things you learned along the way about his early days that were new to you? It was just, you know, digging in deeper with those friendships. One of the first interviews I did for the book was Hubert Sam, basically one of Biggie's longest friends. What struck me the most about this was throughout our entire interview, he never called him Big or Biggie. He always called him Chris. I knew this was going to be an emotional process in a lot of ways, but you know, as the world lost an iconic rapper and iconic musician and like this guy who soundtracked our lives in so many ways, but for people like Hubert Sam, that was his first friend. They met in kindergarten. And so finding out these stories about young Chris, who would come to kindergarten and talk about country music that his mother would play around the house or movies that they would watch together and just the innocence of a child, you know? And that really struck me and just like, what was he like just going over his friend's house, like, you know, playing video games, being a young preteen boy with his friends? What did they talk about? What were his interests? What, what was he like in school? How was he able to pass every test but not study for anything? Because he, he could memorize everything off the top of his head, which, you know, he never wrote lyrics. So it makes sense that he wouldn't have to study for tests. He never wanted to be like a fireman or a lawyer or a doctor. He was always going to be something creative because his friends saw it even then. He would always carry a rhyme book with Rapper's Delight lyrics written in there. And he would just write them off the top of his head. I said a hip hop, a hip it, a hip it, a hip, hip hop. You don't stop the rocket to the bang, man. Boogie say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. Now what you... The one thing I wanted to do with this book, obviously, when you talk about his life, you got to talk about the real big high points. Obviously, you know, sold some drugs, met Tupac, beef with Tupac, and then died in a very tragic manner. Yes, all those things happened and all those things are in the book. But what I wanted to do as best I could, at least, I wanted to humanize this guy. He wasn't just in the studio all day, every day recording music. He was living life. He was accomplishing a lot of things, but also he was a 22, 23, 24 year old young man who was still making a lot of mistakes in his life, like a lot of 22, 23, 24 year olds make. And that that's, I just learned so much about him as a man, as a person, as a son, as a best friend, who he wanted to be as a father, you know, the shortcomings he may have had as a, as a romantic partner in terms of fidelity and things of that nature. I wanted to paint a full 360 degree picture of, of, of this, you know, icon and tell people that he's an icon, but he's also a human being at the same time as well. Yeah, the country music thing jumped out at me. The fact that Biggie said, I can't go to sleep unless I listen to country music. I guess it makes sense to me when you start to think about the storytelling and the lyrics. And that also connected to his Jamaican roots, that his mother was from Jamaica. 
and people were listening to country music there, apparently. Absolutely. We think about the DJs in, in Biggie's life, where there was obviously 50 Grand who recorded the demo and Mr. C who re-recorded the demo and got it to Puffy and the Source and, you know, uh, DJ Enough and, you know, guys like that. But honestly, his first DJ was his mom. Like, she was the one always playing music around the house. And like you said, she was a big fan of country music. She loved country music for the reasons that you said, the storytelling more than anything. And I, I think big was he was always a natural storyteller in whatever he did but you can't say that that didn't influence him in some way or some manner tell me about donald harrison because that's another really interesting thing he was a really important early influence and mentor for biggie a jazz musician in the last days of art blakey and the jazz messengers he was playing in that band So there was a direct link between Biggie and a jazz legend. Donald Harrison, that is a a vital relationship in his life. He was already interested in music. You know, he was writing lyrics down in a notebook, whether it be his lyrics or whether it be just lyrics he would hear on the radio from other artists, Run DMC, so on and so forth. I think Donald Harrison showed Big how to be a professional in the studio. He moved to New York in, I want to say, the early 1980s. He was a jazz player, and he lived down the street from Big. I, Big was at 226 St. James. I believe Donald Harrison was uh, was at 218. So Big would always sit on his stoop because he, he couldn't leave his stoop because his mother wouldn't let him. So he would always see Donald Harrison walking by, whether it be with, you know, musical instruments or, you know, as Big would say, yeah, I was seeing with different ladies. And he was like, I, I, I always wanted to know who this guy was. So when he was sitting on his stoop one day, Donald Harrison walked by and he was like, hey, man, all you see, I, I always see you with these instruments. Like, what do you do? And he was like, I'm a, I'm a jazz artist. I'm a musician. And Chris told him, like, I really like music, too. I want to know how to make it. Eventually, Donald Harrison and Valletta met each other and Valletta was ecstatic about him eventually ecstatic because at first it was like why is this older guy taking a liking to my kid like that's kind of crazy right but then she saw the connection that they had and she thought if if he could go over donald harrison's house and learn how to you know make music and you know just occupy his time there he wouldn't be in the streets because keep in mind this is brooklyn in the 80s this is you know neck deep in the crack era and valetta wasn't she she wasn't ignorant to what was going on outside of her door and she just wanted to protect her son the best way she could. Once they really started hanging out and Chris and Hubert Sam and all their friends would go over there and he would teach them, all right, here's where you stand in front of a mic. Okay, here here's breath control. Listen to these jazz artists and understand like this is how you can like ride a beat. Chris was such an instant learner. He would listen to Cannonball Adderley and you know understand the beat count and understand the rhythm. <laughs> Donald Harrison was like, there's grown men and women that can't get this. And here's this 14-year-old kid who's just, he feels like a prodigy. And everything just comes so easily to him. But he he wasn't one of those people, like, if it came easily to him, he half-assed it. And so that bond, although it was short-lived, when you talk about Biggie Smalls, the musician, and you talk about 
his cadence, his flow, how you how how he would say different things in a booth. You can't talk about that and not mention Donald Harrison because Donald Harrison was vital into the creation of what eventually became the Notorious B.I.G. Biggie, who was still known as Christopher Wallace at that point, would sit on the stoop of his building. His mother wouldn't let him leave the stoop. But even just sitting there, he saw an awful lot. You do a great job of putting all this in historical and sociological context. What was going on in New York in the 80s in Brooklyn, the rise of crack. So even from his spot on the stoop, he could see hustling going on. And that was at least as enticing as spotting Harrison, the guy with the saxophone. And you actually trace step by step how he got involved in hustling. Credit to Valletta Wallace. She was, you know, a single mother in Brooklyn in the 80s. And, you know, she's trying to, you know, she has her own life. She has her own job. The most important thing in her life was taking care of her son, Christopher. She loved Christopher to the ends of the earth a billion times over. She wouldn't let him leave the stoop. Okay, he couldn't leave the stoop, but he wasn't going to sit on the stoop with his eyes closed. You know, he could see things. Like, you would see, you know, the hand-to-hand transactions in the drug game. You would see people, like, shootouts. You know, you would see things like this. So, but what enticed Big the most was the money. And he saw he saw money exchanging hands. He saw, you know, people his age in nice clothes and some had the cars and you know you know they had the women around him like those things enticed him he was 15 years old of course it was like 13 14 15 years old of course this is going to entice him so eventually you know he's just good he, he just bucked at the trend he was like i'm getting off this stoop and once i get off this stoop it was literally a different world out there for him he saw how fast it was he saw how transactions went down he understood how to break things down he could do math in his head very very quickly i don't want to champion this by any stretch but he was a good drug dealer like he knew what to charge and when to charge and how to break stuff down and how to get this done he picked up on it very quickly because again he was very observant in everything so and it was the same way when he was in the studio he would sit in the studio for hours and just listen to a beat and then out of nowhere he would just jump up and be like all right cut the beat on and then knock out something like unbelievable in like one take unbelievable the song and unbelievable in terms of the description of the song but yeah that's just how he was like once he got off that stoop his world changed and he started actually traveling down in north carolina and he started to become a, a much bigger time dealer he was not just a local guy no 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 he, he's he taking trips out of town to raleigh north carolina like he was down there in the mix like he was again he wasn't noriega or anybody like that but he was he was moving some significant product in you know in two states at least two states north carolina and and new york so the purpose of going down south for you know people that are listening the purpose of going going down south to sell drugs because you can make more money down south you can move more product and you can you can charge more and so what what you may get for fifty dollars in new york you could get for a hundred dollars in north carolina and that's that's what the enticing part was so if you listen to like jay-z's early work and he talks uh, talks about taking trips down to virginia and maryland like the, a lot of people were doing that and that that was the reason for it and it, it, it's it's crazy because the north carolina part was one of my favorite parts of the book not necessarily because I, i'm glorifying drug dealing i'm not doing that at all but i thought like it showed a different side of who big was and it wasn't just like 24 7 he was selling drugs in north carolina like no he had a life he had friends down there like he would go to the club that's it greg dent was one of my favorite interviews for this book because he would just talk about how big would come to his club and try to beg him to get on the mic 
and he would freestyle on the mic and Greg Dent would be like, this isn't what I want. Like, I got women in here. You over here talking about shootouts with cops and things of that nature. Like, that's not the music we need. And, you know, Big would, he would always be the one like, let's go to Waffle House. And so when you hear the T-Bone steaks, cheese eggs and Welch's grape, like that was the real order that he would get when he was down in North Carolina because they didn't have Waffle House up in New York. So that was a very fascinating part of his life even though it was it was very brief. so And there was this guy named 50 Grand, a DJ, and that was a really key person for him. That was how his first tape was made. Biggie and 50 Grand met through a mutual friend, one of Big's best friends, D-Rock. D-Rock is definitely still around, a uh, great guy. D-Rock would hustle on Bedford and Quincy, which is not too, which is probably about a mile away from Fulton and St. James where Biggie grew up. And, uh, so he just brought him over there because, you know, he was D Rock and Biggie were they were they were real cool. And he just brought him around his friends like these are my friends over here. And one of those guys was 50 Grand who ran with, with this crew called the OGB, the Old Gold Brothers. And, you know, they were all hustling. They, they were doing that. But 50 had music equipment and he had a basement where, you know, he would make mixtapes for his friends. It wasn't anything that he was trying to blow up and become internationally known. But. D-Rock told 50, like, yo, my man is good. Like, he can rap. Like, you can hear it. And it was one day they were just chilling, I think, just smoking and drinking. And he was like, yo, I'm going to put a beat on. And they freestyle. And he was like, all right, cool. And <laughs> 50 Grand told me, he was like, the first time he heard Biggie rap, he was like, oh, no, he, he can't rap. Like, he can rap. Like, this guy is like, no, this ain't just us freestyling on the corner just trying to pass the time like there's something here so they recorded that demo tape in like one night and 50 grand was really cool with dj mr c who was big daddy kane's dj at that point and big daddy kane was biggie's favorite artist now the one thing about biggie was that he never shopped his own music he never went to record labels somebody else always did it for him one because Biggie didn't like the the idea of begging somebody to like to like listen to his music and also too like he had a deep fear of rejection as well. You know what I mean? So like that that's another thing that really like stood out to me. So 50 begs Mr. C to listen to this tape and C doesn't do it uh immediately because he has to go on tour with Big Daddy Kane, but when he comes back he listens to the tape and he's like, "What?" He's rapping over Big Daddy Kane beats, arguably better than Big Daddy Kane. And like, who is this guy? And so they eventually meet and they re-record the demo, like clean it up, make it sound a little bit clear. Mr. C gets this to Maddie C at the source, who has the unsigned height column. And that's that's how that column came to be. And Maddie C had a relationship with this guy named Sean Combs, who was at Uptown Records at that point in time, also known as Puffy or Love or whatever he's calling himself these days. Puffy was one of the biggest up and coming names in music at this point. So to give you context, he really helped revolutionize Jodeci's look and their image. And he did the same for Mary J. Blige. He was working with Heavy D at the time. So Puffy was was on, but he he wanted... He wanted to go more of the street route in terms of his artists. Uh, so Maddie C let him listen to Biggie and he was and that's how that meeting came to be. And so Maddie C set up the meeting with Mr. C and Biggie. And so once Biggie freestyled in, in, in the 
in in the in Puffy's office at Uptown, Puffy was like, "I can have a record on you out by the summer." Uh, how does that sound? And Big was Big, still very shy, not looking Puffy in the eye. He he looked at Mr. C. He was like, "Whatever C say, man. Whatever C. If C said, I'm gonna do it." And you can read the book, and it's in much more detail in the book. But that's the kind of the elevator pitch of how so many people put this tape in so many other people's hands and big really all he did was just rap and the word just got out from there this song uh, biggie got the hype shit it's a demo that's floating around youtube that came from the re-record of his initial demo is that right yeah yeah that was one of the songs they like re-recorded and it was it's also one of those they recorded some more songs too and but like the original copies of those got burned in a fire at a studio that, that burned in like 1995 so they're like those those copies are are no longer you know you can't listen to them anymore. So they they recorded quite a few songs together. But yeah, Biggie got the hype shit was definitely one of them. And you can hear it like he's rapping faster than you know what he what what he would eventually do on records. But it, it was the flow was all always there, and the 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 storytelling and the the potency and the vividness of his lyrics it was always there. As he grew more and more into an artist, you could hear his style changing. You can hear that up until the end of his life, which is the you know the tragic part about this because Biggie was getting better as an artist. You know, at the time of life after death. I mean, it's crazy to realize that Ten Crack Commandments" is one of the last songs he ever recorded. I've been in this game for years. Uh, it made me an animal. It's rules to the shit. Uh-huh. I wrote me a manual, a step by step booklet. The last two verses that he did in his life, he did them on March seventh or the early, early hours of March eighth. They were "Victory" and uh, "All About the Benjamins." And because in all about the Benjamins, he references the movie Donnie Brasco, which which was a new movie out at that time. And earlier that night, Biggie, uh, Groovy Lou, and a couple of other pe- people went to the movie theaters in L.A. to go see Donnie Brasco, which is why that ended up in that verse. About a mill of ice grill, make it hard to figure me, liquor be kicking me in my asshole, undercover, Donnie Brasco, that's my East Coast girl, the Bentley, the twirl. Around this time of the stuff we're talking about, right before he got signed, there's this street corner YouTube clip of him battling that ended up in a documentary. And he really kind of shed some light on the context of that clip. So this was around late May, 1991. And uh, earlier that year, Biggie had gotten caught up in North Carolina on on a drug possession charge and had to do a couple of weeks in jail down in Raleigh. And that was one of those things that really changed Big. Not saying that he stopped dealing drugs after that, but I think that was one of those come to God moments in a lot of ways. He was like, okay, this is not, there's no 401k plan in in what I'm doing right now. You know, like I got to make this money and I got to get out. And so that the, the battle itself was in late May and he got out he got out of prison a couple of weeks. He got arrested in February 1991. So that that's where his mind is at that point in time. He's on Bedford and Qu- Quincy just chilling out, chilling with D-Rock, you know, 50 grand is like spinning on the ones and twos and so like everybody's chilling and then you know the battle breaks out. It was with this guy named Supreme 
and he was just like a local, you know, local hustler. He freestyled as well, and it just that's just how it happened. You know, people were like grilling out on the on the sidewalk. People were just chilling. That's when like the entire neighborhood figured out like, oh, wait a minute, there's something here. You know what I mean? He had just turned 19 at that point. So once that battle happens, it's like it, he instantly became like a neighborhood legend. Even if he didn't have the career that he would eventually have, like he would he would have always been a Bedford and Quincy leg, legend just based off that one day because that that battle was legendary. And, you know, he just came off the top of the head with just like shooting back at the Supreme. And people were like, whoa, like this guy is there's something here. So that that battle was one of those landmark moments, not just in his life, but honestly, in the history of Brooklyn. It was interesting to get a real portrait of Puffy. You do a great job of sketching out the backstories and biographies of these other characters in the Biggie story. I love reading about Puffy at Howard and how he was just always Puffy from the second he stepped on campus, it seems like. It's wild. There was a big campus protest, and he was the guy who sold posters commemorating it for 10 bucks a piece. That kind of says it all. Yeah, that was Puff. That was Puff, man. He was going to figure out a way to make a dollar. He was, all, he was always about that. But in case anyone had any doubt, your book kind of cements the case of Puffy's influence on Biggie's music, which really was in the executive producer mode. That's really the right way of putting it. He didn't have his hand on any knobs, but he was the guy who said, first of all, as, as Biggie once said, you know, this, this song's for radio. Try not to kill anyone's mother in the lyrics or suggesting the idea of the sample for Juicy, that kind of thing. Uh, it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday There's probably no denying that even on an artistic level, he helped Biggie get bigger than he would have otherwise. You can say whatever you want to about Puffy, and a lot of people have over the years, but there's no denying the impact that he had on the Notorious B.I.G.'s career. Now, honestly, yes, they they both helped each other immensely, you know, what I mean, because Puffy isn't Puffy without Biggie, but Biggie isn't Biggie without Puffy, you know, so Puffy, he always operated on the on the on the spectrum like, all right, big. 85 percent of this album, I'm gonna let you do what you want to do, Like you can talk about whatever you want to talk about, but that 15 percent, you got to give me that. Like, you got to give me the juices. You got to give me the big papa. You know, you got to give me those because we got to reach so many people. And once you reach these people and you draw them in, then you can talk about all the stuff that you really want to talk about on the record. But like, you got to, you got to be able to honestly play both sides of the fence. You know, you, you can have the hardcore street shit, but. You also gotta have the the radio bangers because you gotta you gotta you gotta lure people in with your music because at that point at that point in time not many people knew who he was, so you know and and that's something that Mr. C talked about because sometimes you know in the early parts of recording Ready to Die like Puffy would be like yeah that's cool but we we need another record like this and Big would kind of get frustrated he was like man I just want to make the music I want to make and Mr. C was like look trust me on this. Just listen to Puffy. Like he will, I know he can He can be Puffy sometimes, but he knows what he's talking about. He knows how to make a star. And once Big really was like, okay, I see, I see what this guy's vision is. I believe in him. And then, you know, unfortunately, they only had a few years together, but the, the stuff they created in the time that they had together is, I mean, we're still talking about it now, what, over a quarter century later. 
So Big, Big had to learn how to trust Puffy, and Puffy had to understand it was like, I can't really control this guy too much, but I have to know when to go in and, like you said, be an executive producer. Not tell him what to say, but tell him what songs to make and when to make them. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Needless to say, even if he had only made ready to die, his reputation would be secure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I tell people, and I wrote a story about this, and also it's, it, it's obviously in the book. Ready to Die came out September 13th, 1994. That was the same day that the 1994 crime bill was sign, signed into law. And if you know about the 94 crime bill, you know the terms that come with it, like super predators and, you know, cracking down on crime. If you listen to Ready to Die with that with that context, it sounds like a completely different album. It was already a classic to begin with, but now it hits home even more because what Biggie was doing on that album was basically saying, this is the reality that myself and my friends live on a daily basis. While people are in Congress saying, oh, we got to crack down on these kids and like they're, they're what's wrong with society. Like, no. We're living with the conditions that you're forcing us to live in. And this is the product of those conditions. So, yeah, he would have ready to die made him a, a legend almost immediately. You know, Biggie didn't blow up overnight, but he blew up quite quickly when you think about the the, the timeline of his career and ready to die, man. Like you, you mentioned things done change like that. That song is. Man, I, I get goosebumps listening to that song. I get goosebumps listening to, you know, uh, the actual title track, Ready to Die. I'm ready to die and nobody can save me. Fuck the world, fuck my moms and my girl. My life is played out like a jerry curl. I'm ready to die. You know that, you know, everyday struggle. You know, like even the last track, Suicidal Thoughts. When I die, fuck it, I want to go to hell. Because I'm a piece of shit, it ain't hard to fucking tell. It don't make sense going to heaven. It's such a dark album, but there's so much beauty within that album as well. It starts out, of course, with Things Done Change, and there's so much reflection in that song, and it's really a protest song. Remember back in the days when niggas had waves, gazelle shades and corn braids, pitching pennies, honeys had the high top jellies. And of course... The dichotomy of Biggie is that he goes straight from things done changed to give me the loot. Give me the loot, give me the loot. Give me the loot, give me the loot. Big up, big up, it's a stick up, stick up, and I'm shooting niggas quick. Which is just some flat out ignorant shit. And even within that track, though, he's playing two different characters and doing two different voices, and that blew people away. And that's just, that spoke to how creative he was. You know, he was like, you know what, I could rap this whole this entire song you know in one cadence and it'll still be fire but what if i switch it up what if i what if i give you the personalities that i see here in the street every day you got you got the one voice that's kind of the more reasonable logical like all right here's how we're going to do this and then you got the live wire both of those type of people live in the street every day and so i, I think that was the genius of big because he took his experiences in the street and painted them in a way that few artists ever have. 
and you know give me the loot like you said going from things done change straight into give me the loot is such a like a mind warp but it makes sense when you think about it it's a beautiful uh, example of sequencing one of the songs that caused the most trouble for biggie was this song just playing dreams and you know he fantasizes about getting with all these uh, r&b singers and the actual artists involved were not happy yeah as i sit back relax steam a blunt sip of vex think about the sexy singers that i want to sex i'll probably go to jail for fucking patty labelle Ooh, Regina. yeah like patty labelle was pissed patty labelle almost got biggie dropped from the label you know that like and obviously what he said about escape you know that that followed him up until the last day of his life you know he he got a chance to apologize to tiny but candy burris who obviously is an escape she says one of the big regrets of her life was not talking to biggie that night at the party in, in los angeles because he wanted to apologize he was basically saying like look man i was just making music and i was having fun in the studio he was like who am i to call somebody ugly he was like look at me another thing the book does really well is reveal just how close biggie and tupac were before things went wrong these guys were friends man man like obviously you know biggie and Pac are always going to be linked together for the rest of time and i understand that and I understand, you know, how ugly it was when things, you know, went went left. But these guys were damn near best friends. Like they met each other. Like Tupac was uh, in, he was in Atlanta with John Singleton and they were promoting poetic justice. And John Singleton would tell the story all the time. It was like, we had a limo and like we were going all around Atlanta just par partying and smoking and drinking and doing all this. He said, but the only song that Tupac would play wouldn't be his own music. It, it was by this guy from New York named Biggie Smalls. It was a song called Party and Bullshit. I was a terrorist in the public school era. Bathroom passes, cutting classes, squeezing asses. Smoking blunts was a daily routine since 13. It was on the Who's the Man soundtrack. That was Tupac's favorite song. So when he found out Biggie was in L.A. doing promo stuff with Bad Boy, which was just getting off the ground at that point, they actually linked up. And these guys, like, they instantly hit it off. I mean, they were both Geminis. So they were Gemini twins in, in, in a way. And they both they both respected each other. Like, Tupac really respected that, you know, Big was really in the streets. He was doing what he was rapping about. And, and, and obviously, he, he loved the fact that Biggie was such a, a gifted lyricist and wordsmith. Meanwhile, Biggie really appreciated the fact, you know, Tupac came from like this revolutionary, like uh, freedom fighter lineage. And he he always stood up for what he believed were like the best interests of black people. And like Biggie really respected that. And honestly, yeah, you know, they, they both love to smoke a lot of weed. They both love to drink. And they, bo they both love to go into the studio and make music. So like these guys were incredibly, incredibly close. Like, you know, Tupac would have Biggie over his house when he was in LA, like sleep on his couch. And like when Biggie would come to New York and when Tupac would come to New York, Big would Big and his friends would always make sure Tupac had protection in terms of guns. If he needed weed, if he needed anything, like they would all, they would always check in on each other. Valletta Wallace tells the story that Tupac would call her house all the time looking for her son and they would have conversations on the phone. So like they were close. It wasn't just, you know, hit him up. Uh oh, Tupac is beefing with uh, uh, the East Coast and Bad Boy and vice versa. Like, yes, that that came eventually. But I think 
to do their relationship justice, we have to talk about how deep that friendship actually was and like what it what it could have become. And just the fact that like they were still so young going through all of this. And you you, you look at their history, you look at their story and it's like, damn, why did Tupac do this? Like, damn, why didn't Biggie do this? And maybe this would have just mended the entire situation. They were kids, man. They were kids with a lot of power. And you know, sometimes the scariest thing in the world is a lot of power because you don't know how to wield it. In a lot of ways, that's what happened with Biggie and Pop. Really kind of Shakespearean. There's a series of literally deadly misunderstandings. And it began, you know, Tupac, as is well known, was going up to visit Biggie when he was famously shot in New York. And the book makes it really clear once again that it had nothing to do with Biggie. But Tupac fixated on the idea that it did. And that was really the downfall of everything. You know, the, the thing about Tupac is he was born into a world having to run from something or somebody, which started off as like the federal government. So he was all, he was born into paranoia. And I think that followed him throughout throughout his life. And, you know, right before, you know, Tupac was shot in Quad Studios in November 94, uh, Biggie was telling Pac, he was like, yo, these guys that you're running with in New York, you need to be careful because these guys are serious. Mike Tyson is telling Tupac from jail, like, you're kind of out of your league running with these guys. And they're they're referring to people like Haitian Jack, who at that point in time was one of the most feared, respected, but also charismatic dudes in New York. You know, he he had been he was he's, he's an enforcer. He didn't mind inflicting pain when pain needed to be inflicted. But like this dude. He would be chilling with Madonna in like the most elite clubs in New York. All the all the football players knew him. All the basketball players knew him. Like this guy was damn near more popular than a lot of people he was hanging out with, at least in New York circles. But he he was somebody who you don't want to cross him. Now, even to this day, like you know, even you know he's not in America anymore now. But you don't want to cross him. And like so, Biggie is telling him like, yeah, just be careful. Be careful who you're hanging out with. Tupac was going to the studio that night because he was just leaving a studio session with uh, DJ Ron G. And he did that studio session for free because he and Ron G were, were, were really cool. Now, he was getting calls from a guy named Jimmy Henchman who was working with the artist named Little Sean. And Pac didn't really know Henchman or Little Sean like that. So Tupac is going to Quad. And he's still uneasy about it because, like, I don't really know these guys, but, you know, Tupac was, he was strapped for cash. He knew he was probably going to be going to prison for a little bit, so he wanted to save as much money for his family as he could. So he gets the quad, and his, whatever hesitations that he has are instantly alleviated because he sees somebody calling him from, like, a, a balcony, and it was Lil C's. It was Lil C's and a couple of other people, they were out there smoking weed. And so he was like, yo, Pac, yo, Pac, we up, you know, big upstairs, we in the studio right now. And so Tupac is like, oh, bet, like, my people are here. Like, I have nothing to be concerned with now. He walks into the lobby and he sees, like, these guys, like, working the front desk and, like, army fatigues, but they're not, like, acknowledging him, which kind of, you know, threw Tupac for a loop because he was like, yeah, like I thought everybody here was like Biggie's friend and like all Biggie's friends like show me love whenever I come around. But he was like, whatever. So he hits the button to go upstairs to the studio. And then that's when the ambush happens. That's when he shot. They rob him for all of his jewelry. And when you see that photo of him on the gurney 
and giving the middle finger, that was to actually Biggie. Because Biggie had ran downstairs once he heard Tupac got shot. But once they got downstairs, they were being questioned by police because police showed up almost immediately. And in Tupac's mind, it was like, I came here to see y'all. You know what I mean? Like, y'all are my friends. Like, y'all should have let me know that something was going to happen. Biggie, in Biggie's mind, he's working on Player's Anthem. He's working on the Junior Mafia album at that point. Badasses, cracks and stacks and masses. Uh-huh. If robbery's the class, bet I pass it. Shit get drastic. I'm burying your bastards. And so Biggie just didn't understand. He was like, you know what? Pac is tripping. He's, he was just shot five times. Like, his mind is everywhere. We got to, like, let him calm down. And, like, he'll, he'll come to his senses. And he knows that I had nothing to do with this. Like, I would never, like... Like, Biggie was a star at that point. Ready to Die was selling, like, hotcakes. Like, Big Papa was a huge single going on at that point. Like, he had no reason to set Tupac up. Like, there was no reason for him to do that. But, unfortunately, they never they never had a chance to, to iron that stuff out. And Tupac goes to prison right after that. And he has all that time to kind of ruminate over this and become more and more convinced that Biggie's his enemy. He was a different person once he got out of jail. Like he was still prolific in terms of, like the music that he was making and things he was saying in his music. But when you when you read that first vibe interview with Kevin Powell, where he interviews Pop at Rikers Island, you know, and he talks about everything, the shooting and and who he felt was behind it. Even when he mentioned Biggie and Puffy and Bad Boy, you know, things of that nature, he was accusing them of doing things, but it wasn't as venomous as it was by the time he got out. He was in a maximum security penitentiary. People were in his ear in prison saying, oh, you didn't know, like, yeah, Biggie's homeboy shot you. Yeah, definitely Biggie's homeboy shot you. And so, again, you're dealing with somebody who who operates in paranoia so much, he's going to hear that type of stuff, and, it, and it's going to do something to him. And, you know, this isn't really, like, reported out a lot, but, like, he was, you know assaulted by guards when he was in prison allegedly like he would meet his lawyer and they would talk about his case and then the lawyers would like basically taunt him with the rubber gloves I'm like come on Tupac you got a cavity search and they would give him unnecessary like so when you're going through all that you got shot five times you you say you're in prison for a crime that you you did not commit you're you're being treated like this you, you be basically being treated less than human in in prison and you feel like one of your former best friends is behind you getting shot. And not only that, he's the biggest rapper in the world at this point. By 1995, there was no way Tupac was going to get out of prison and not be the Tupac that we saw in the last 11 months of his life, unfortunately. And then he signs with Suge Knight and that's kind of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he he had the perfect powder keg with Tupac because Tupac, they had a mutual, I guess you could say, enemy. Suge didn't like Puffy. That's another story altogether. So he knew all he had to do was put a battery in Tupac's back and Tupac would take it from there. And, you know, that's that's what happened in a lot of ways. And all that Suge Knight ever knew how to do was escalate, that's for sure. Yeah, but even, even when you go back and listen to Suge interviews around like 95, 96 or anything, like Suge's animosity is always tw- always towards Puffy. I mean, he hardly ever mentions Big. And 
There's an interview that Biggie did with Hot 97 in like the summer of 96. So this is probably a couple of weeks before uh, Tupac was murdered. And somebody asked him, like, are you ever going to respond to hit him up? And Big's answer was plain and simply like, no, he was like, I know, I understand, like, the tension, I understand, that's on everybody's mind, but he was like, you will never hear me make a song dissing Tupac. He was like, that's just not what I'm going to do. Like, although you, you you can venture to say, like, Long Kiss Goodnight was a, a Tupac diss on Ready to Die. Like, that that was pretty venomous. But he was basically, I'm never going to record response to hit him up because he was like i don't want to feed into that he was like i know Pac. like we were friends at one point like we were really good friends i know that dude he was like i don't know suge like i don't know suge they never really had any interaction so yeah when big was in california california those last couple of months of his life he knew how thick it was out there because people would run up to him and say west side or like tupac or whatever the case may be so he knew the tension was thick but he was innocent and he was naive in a sense of saying like yo i'm gonna just make these people love me he was like i, I need them to know that i had nothing to do with this he was like I know Tupac and I had our had our had our beef, had our squabbles. But he was like, I would never wish death on anybody because I've seen death so much in the streets, and I know it's no coming back from that. He was like, I would never wish death on that man. And so, in Biggie's eyes, he was in L.A. kind of like on a, on a peace treaty mission. Like, I need this city to know because he loved L.A. He was in the process of moving to Los Angeles at the time of his death. He was going to buy a house out there. He was telling everybody that. Radio DJs, Allen Iverson, you know, he was telling everybody like, yo, I love it out here. I want this to be my home. And I, I just need the city to know, like, I love y'all. I want y'all to love me. And like, let's move past like what the past year has been like, because it hasn't been fun for anybody, especially big. And he made the song Going Back to Cali is kind of like a tribute to Cali. I think at the at, at the very end of his life, I think he 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 thought he was moving forward in that because you listen to anybody who was at that vibe party that night. They said that party was insane. It was fun. Everybody was dancing. Obviously, Big wasn't moving around a lot because he was on a cane stemming from the car accident that he was in a couple of months earlier. But he was having fun. People were coming up to him like, like, yo, can't wait for your new album. Like they played Hypnotize like 20 times that night at the party. And it, it just turned up even more every time they played it. And of course, you know, a couple of minutes later, he, he was he was shot and killed. But he loved L.A. The love of Los Angeles mattered deeply to, to, to Biggie Smalls. And it's just tragic that, you know, it happened like that. And Suge, yes, and I spoke to Greg Kading for this book, who has done a ton of great work on, on both Biggie and Tupac's murders. It was just, it's tragic, man, how, how, how it happened and why it happened. It shouldn't have ended like that. When you look at the evidence in various people's investigations, you conclude that Biggie's death seems to have come mostly from... The idea that Suge Knight allegedly wrongly thought that Biggie was involved or connected to the death of Tupac. Yeah, that is that is the allegation. So Greg Kading, who 
I, like I said, did a lot of work on both Biggie and Tupac's murders. If you watched the, the series Unsolved on uh, the miniseries on um, USA a couple of years ago, uh, that was basically his work. That was his work. So Suge believes that Biggie and Puffy had Tupac killed. Now, Greg Kading says Biggie had nothing to do with it. In terms of like the hierarchy, in terms of like who you give the blame to, like Suge's definitely number one. He blames Puffy to Tupac three. He was like at the bottom of the totem pole is Biggie because he was basically naive to, to, to so much of it. So according to Greg Kading's investigation, this is allegedly what happened. I'm gonna keep saying that allegedly word a lot. Suge is in jail. He, because of course, when uh, Tupac and Suge stomped Orlando Anderson right after that Tyson fight, that was a violation of Suge's parole. So he's waiting to find out his fate. And allegedly, uh, you know, Kading talks to one of Suge's ex-girlfriends. Now, in the court documents, her name is Teresa Swan. That's not her actual name. She had a history with Suge. And uh, Kading's investigation led his team to her. And they basically... Not cornered her, but they presented their side of the story and what they heard. And she basically confessed to everything. But she had prosecutorial immunity. So in order for her to basically give up everything that she knew. Now, allegedly, according to her statement, what happened was she facilitated the meeting between Suge in prison and one of Suge's like long time, I guess you could say muscle. His name was uh, Wardell Faust. On the street, he was known as Poochie. And he was a hitter. So I believe they they paid him $9,000 up front and then another $13,000 to carry out the hit. This, this is all allegedly according to Teresa Swan. And yeah, and, that, and that's what happened. They knew Biggie was going to be leaving the party at a certain time. Uh, and he... It, it, the, the opportunity presented uh, itself at the corner of Fairfax and Wilshire. There have been so many theories into, you know, what happened that night. Obviously, Russell Poole had his had his theories even before Greg Kading, and he thought that, you know, the, the cops may have had a role in it. Now, the cops were absolutely embedded in death row. Not like undercover cops, but they, they were, they were off-duty cops who were Crooked cops, and, and that's probably the best way I could say it. So now what Russell Poole's investigation led to, it led to Valletta Wallace and Faith Evans uh, later suing the city of Los Angeles for like $400 million. Uh, They didn't get that, but it left a statement basically saying like, we know that the people who are sworn to protect and serve are may not have like pulled the trigger on my son's murder, but that they were embedded with the crowd that we believe, you know, is is responsible for it. So Poole's investigation kind of laid somewhat of the uh, groundwork for Kading to pick it back up in like 2006 to 2009 when he was actively investigating that. So, uh, it, it, I mean, honestly, at this point, man, it, it's really about which theory you believe. I believe that Poole's theory led to what eventually became known as the Rampart scandal. And it showed the deep webs of corruption within the LAPD. 
I tend to subscribe to Kading's investigation a little bit more in terms of like who actually pulled the trigger. But, you know, as, as you know, as I say in the book, uh, well, as Kading is quoted in the book, uh, Teresa Swan, whoever she may be, she holds the key to, you know, giving Miss Wallace at least some sort of justice and peace that she so rightfully deserves and his family so rightfully deserves you know again allegedly this is all you know greg kading's investigation and he's presented these findings to uh you know to miss wallace and he said once he presented these findings to her it was a very as you can imagine a very emotional moment like she was in tears greg kading was in, greg kading was in tears greg kading's wife was in tears and you know and I think for him, he didn't really know who Biggie and Tupac were like before, you know, he took on the investigation. Obviously, he had heard of them, but he said, you know, when I take on investigations like this, I always look at it as like, how would I want the police to investigate my loved one's murder if if that were to happen? So he was like, it was never it, it was interesting because he never called him Biggie either. He called him Christopher. He said, I was investigating the murder of Christopher Wallace. That's, you know, that's who that was. That's who that is. Again, it, it's really all about what theory you you, you subscribe to um, because none of them have been uh, confirmed 100%, but they're so, the, the, the rabbit hole you put yourself in by, the, you know, investigating and researching both Poole and Kading's theories is, it, it, it'll take you places that, honestly, man, it, it's scary sometimes. To take it away from his death for a minute, one of the things that was really nice to be reminded of and maybe get the most detailed account of ever was Biggie's relationship with Jay-Z. It's really funny and basically prophetic to see the number of times where people would be like, yo, Biggie, uh, there's somebody almost, I think he's as good as you. Yeah, yeah. Clark Kent, man. I actually did a Twitter thread on this recently and it went viral for sure. Clark Kent was Biggie's road DJ, like tour DJ. At this point, obviously, Clark is a huge fan of Big, but he's telling him, he's like, hey, man, there's this other guy from Brooklyn from Marcy Projects. He's really, really, really good. And Big is like, yeah, yeah, whatever, man, whatever, whatever. And Clark Kent is like, no, man, like, he's really good. Like, he might be better than you. And so once you say that, once you say that, you know, Biggie's ears are like, excuse me, what? And so he would let. He would let Big hear some early songs of Jay-Z. And Big would be like, yeah, no, he's he's good. Like, he's really good. I, I give you that. Your man's is nice. And so Clark kept saying, like, no, he's really good, Big. He's really good. And so, and this is, like, it's hilarious and it's also sad. You know, Who Shot You has, is one of Biggie's hardest songs ever. But it's it's so connected to, you know, to Tupac. All the, although the song was recorded before Tupac was even shot. And Tupac knew that. But if you listen to the second verse, according to Clark Kent, this is uh, Biggie's response to Clark Kent saying that, yo, Jay-Z is, you know, he might be better than you. I seen the light seen excite the all the freaks. Stack mad chips, spread love with my peeps. Niggas want to creep. Got to watch my back. Think the cognac and in those... So it, the second verse isn't a Jay-Z diss. 
But it is to Clark Kent saying, you're going to stop saying somebody's better than me because I know I'm the best. And I'm going to make you say I'm the best. And so fast forward a little bit. Uh, Jay-Z's working on his debut album, Reasonable Doubt. And uh, Clark Kent is in the studio with Biggie. And he accidentally plays the Brooklyn's Finest beat. And Biggie's like, what is that? I need that. I need that. And he was like, nah, you know, it's, it's for Jay. And Biggie's getting upset. He was like, you give this mother everything. Like, like, get me the beat. I want the beat. He was like, look, Clark was like, Big, if Jay doesn't want the beat, then it's yours. But I'm giving it to him. And he was like, how about this? How about you get on the record? He was like, all right, cool. So Clark... Uh, is in the studio with Jay-Z at this point, and they're working on uh, uh, Brooklyn's Finest, which was originally going to be called like No More Mr. Nice Guy, which is why Jay- Jay-Z starts his verse off with like that. But so he he has three verses on it. He's recording it. And Clark is like, yeah, this is great, but you should get big on the song. And everybody in the studio is like, yeah, I mean, that'd be great. That'd be great to get big on the song. <laughs> but Dame Dash is in the background saying, but we ain't paying Puff. We're not dealing with Puff. We're not paying Puff. And Clark is like, look, you know I know him. Look, I'll talk to Big, see if he wants to get on the record. And if then if he wants to get on the record, we'll, 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 we'll handle the paperwork later. But let's just see if we can get him on. He was like, all right, cool. If you can get him on, if you can get him in the studio and you get him on the record, we'll do it. So Clark is like, all right, cool. Um, I got to use the bathroom. Big's in the car waiting the entire time. So when, when Clark walked back in, Big walks in, and then Biggie and Jay, all they do is just bust out laughing when they see each other. Because it was like, oh, man, it's great to finally, like, meet you. And, uh, you know, they exchange pleasantries and all this. And then Jay was like, all right, I'm about to go in the studio and, like, re-record my verse. It completely floors Big. He was like, oh, your man is nice. Your man is really, really nice. I got vendettas and dice games against uh-huh. ass betters and niggas who pump wheels and drive jettas. Take that with you. Hit you, back split you. Fuck fist fights and links. And from there, man, it was just, that could have easily become a situation where egos could have collided, jealousy could have arose, but it was something completely different. Like, they became super close. Like, they went to go see a Bernie Mac show in New York that night. And they they talked on the phone or in person every day up until, you know, Big's death. Like, Big saw somebody who would always push him in Jay-Z. One of the other amazing things that the book does is put everything in historical context, including, you know, Tupac's family history, which connects to the government's surveillance and harassment of black revolutionaries. So it's all part of the fabric of history and and, you know congrats again on the book thank you so much man it's been an honor to come on here and talk to you thank you so much for having me on here and yeah please go buy the book pre-order the book may 10th 2022 it's a labor of love i hope people read this and come away with it like yeah this was a great musician but like this was an incredible human at the same time too and that's our show for today thanks again to justin tinsley rolling stone music now will be back next week we're on Sirius XM's volume channel 106, and we are, of course, a podcast. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. We truly always are grateful for that. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
to Talkville. The Ultimate Smallville Rewatch Podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.